the title of my presentation is uh, Elites and Emulators, the Evolution of an Iraqi Kurdish European System. So basically, I'm trying to... I've been inspired by Oliver Bakewell and his attempt to kind of sketch out a, a theoretical approach. Uh, and I'm trying to apply that uh, systems theory or systems approach uh, empirically to the Iraqi Kurds. It's, uh, my, this is part of my PhD, which is part of a wider project called Possibilities and Realities of Return Migration, or the PREMIG project, at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. I'm, my driving research question then uh, for this article is, is how this migration systems of Iraqi Kurdish migration to Europe and back, how did it emerge and how has it evolved through various historical stages starting from 1975 until today. So also trying to, to, to induce a sense of history in the otherwise sometimes, I think, somewhat sterile uh, migration systems approach. And in looking at the evolution, I'm particularly interested in the role of pioneer, pioneers, both the pioneer emigrants and the pioneer returnees. Uh, and yeah, the empirical data consists of uh, approximately 100 in-depth interviews. I did uh, about 80 in Iraqi Kurdistan with returnees and the rest with um, with uh, Iraqi, Kurds, Iraqi Kurdish emigrants living either in the Norway or in the UK. And the returnees were from these countries, from Norway and the UK. So here's kind of like a, a periodization of, of the Iraqi Kurdish immigration. It's, until 1975, there was basically like a lot of uh, involuntary, involuntary immobility imposed on the Iraqi Kurdish and the Iraqi population by Saddam Hussein, like controlling the borders and controlling uh, the mobility of the people. But, of course, but some, a few people emigrated from the Iraqi Kurdistan from 1975 until 1991. And this, this was the elite, the political elite, forced to flee by persecution. And then a new period followed from 1991 until 1998, uh, where Iraqi Kurdistan, or the, the, the Iraqi Kurdistan was established as a semi-autonomous semi entity with a, with a, a measure of self-rule. But with this relative freedom from Saddam Hussein, uh, there was also civil war and there, was, uh, there were a lot of uh, economic hardship. So double economic sanctions, both imposed by Saddam Hussein uh, domestically on the northern region and imposed by the UN on Iraq as a whole. So there was a lot of poverty at the time. Um, and then in the latest, during the last 10 years, uh, there's been remarkable stability, political stability and remarkable economic growth in, in the Iraqi Kurdistan, it's often referred to as the other Iraq. And I don't think, for most people who are not familiar with Iraqi Kurdistan, it's easy to believe it's, it's kind of part of the wider country, but in many ways it's not. I mean, the development has been very dramatically different. Uh, I shouldn't overdo it either. I mean, there are localized conflicts and, you know, like there are um, uh, skirmishes with, uh, with the central government. Uh, there's a lot of conflict potential around Kirkuk and Mosul, for instance. 
But as a whole, I mean, it's, at least uh, there's been a, a remarkable transition. And this also leads to a lot of uh, both political enthusiasm over Iraqi Kurdistan. I mean, you hear the KRG kind of portraying Iraqi Kurdistan as a as a as a as a safe haven in Iraq, you know, where people can come into a business and uh, where things are going well. And and this is also echoed by um, international scholars stressing how you know, like Iraqi Kurdistan is undergone an, uh, a metamorphosis and you know it's um, uh, there's an economic boom there's development the mood is buoyant uh, yeah it's and there's a, a, a lot of attention from the outside world that was just never the case before so what happens then when you move from like a period of, of fairly extreme immobility imposed by the regime to uh, the, the emigration of a political elite, a limited political elite, to mass immigration. What, what happens throughout this kind of time history? So this is how I'll try it as a, as a timeline. So it starts with the, the pioneers in the 1975-1980, like leaving. Uh, after a period of isolation. Another emigration continues as economic and political elite, economic and political elites continue to emigrate. And this is this is maybe not just a elite season, it's a more uh, a written elite, but it's, it's probably a more uh, inclusive emigration. I mean emigration just got cheaper and mobility became more accessible at this during this time period. And then what are called the emulators is also like a, a, a term that maybe starts over here and continues. You know, like the act of emulation is is, is uh, the term that I, I've used to describe you know the people following in the footsteps of the initial political elite. So as you were saying, like there was an initial kind of act of forced migration, and then there's. Uh, what I call economic refugees, or, or you can call it mixed migration or the, from here and onwards. So this is the immigration side of things. And then the return side of things looks, looks quite different. Until 1991, it was, it was associated with a lot of danger to, uh, to stay in touch with relatives and family and friends back in Iraqi Kurdistan, because you might, uh, you know, there were, there were intelligence listening to the phone calls, and, and they might sanction the families of those who left. So, so people who left until 1991, they, they didn't really engage in transnational communication. And then, so when they start coming back as visiting elites, like on return visits, that's when you get the feedback mechanisms, that's when migration starts to disseminate, I think, or diffuse. Uh, so I think that, as far as I can see from my research, it's, it's, it's three feedback mechanism. It's a transnational marriages where uh, Iraqi Kurdish men return and marry and they're very sought after, very, very popular on the, on the, late, on the marriage market. Uh, and it's, and it's the remittances that people send back. Existentially important remittances at a time of, of pretty extreme hardship during the 1990s. 
Uh, and there's, of course, the, the conspicuous consumption and the narratives of, you know, a bountiful West where, where, thing, where life is good and things are easy. Uh, it was also part of the kind of tradition here that people would come back and, and stay. You know, when they uh, visited the Rocky Curzon, they would be visited by the local people, you know, like people coming for a couple of weeks listening to, to the stories. And so, you know, this, this kind of high profile events, uh, very social events where information about Europe was disseminated. And where the, the imaginary of Europe or the representation of Europe became very positive and, and very kind of skewed as well, I think. Right, so you are visiting elites from here, then you have the elites starting to come back from 2003 and, and during the, the 2000s, during the last decade, and they're well positioned to, to come back at the right time, they have the right amount, they have the information to, to, to uh, you know, they keep informed about the, the affairs in the Iraqi system, the situation, they, they see investment opportunities, they have the money to go back and forth and maintain kind of social capital transnationally, and they come back and they set the standard for success. Ellen, I'm afraid I do not understand what you mean by autonomous return. Okay. Um, well, autonomous return is, is just like the, that they don't return either through voluntary return programs, like the I1 return programs, assisted return, and it's not deported. So it's people going by their own volition. Uh, and then, yeah, and then you have uh, other activities who go back either voluntarily or forcibly and who have to come after the return of their leads when, after they have already kind of scripted the recipe of, uh, for successful return. So, so this is how I've kind of summed up um, the elites and the emulators. It's, it's about the information about the asylum system, how informed are they about the asylum system, how eligible are they for asylum, uh, and also the elites who left during the, after 1975 and, uh, and maybe even up to the 1990s were also enjoying more liberal asylum policies than after the 2000s, after 1998. Especially after 1998, there was a peace agreement in Iraqi Kurdistan. So it was the end of the kind of civil war. You know, like the, two, the main two political parties signed a peace agreement. And after this, it, was, it became much more difficult for the Iraqi Kurds to get asylum. Uh, the elites were also probably more prone to education. And they could, since this was before, since they emigrated and, and established themselves in Europe, before the economic boom during the 2000s, they were also uh, enjoying very, very favorable exchange rates. So like what many people would say was that they would uh, send back $100 and it would be enough to, to feed a family for a month. And then now it's not enough for, for a good kebab at a good restaurant anymore. So it's like the prices has really skyrocketed. Meaning that the people, the emulators, who hadn't been uh, able to reach that kind of success and haven't enjoyed those, uh, those very favorable exchange rates, they have to come back empty-handed to a very demanding economy, a very demanding situation for them. And of course, they're also, you know, just the mere fact that their elites have returned autonomously, and, and as I said, like outside of, of return programs, 
makes them, according to Casarino theory, more prepared, more able to mobilize resources. Uh, and they returned also with a kind of structural shift in the Iraqi Kurdish economies. The labor market has become more kind of knowledge intensive. So whatever they have of education from Europe is worth gold in Kurdistan, and vice versa, coming back without any kind of educational attainment from Europe is very difficult. Uh, the kind of the, the manual labor, the construction sector, that's where you see labor immigration into Iraqi Kurdistan now from Southeast Asia, for instance. So coming back without any skills, it's very, very difficult. Uh, and it's also, there's also reason to believe that the elites were able to maintain kind of social capital uh, transnationally, maintain what's called locally the wasta, like in the middle, right? Um, so networks of patronage. So as one interviewee said, we left as elites and we came back as elites. And often with education, maybe having invested in a house, you know, during exile. So in short, the elites emigrated and returned as successful pioneers, whereas the emulators are pretty much like a mirror image of the elites in many ways, emigrated and returned as failed emulators. So just to sum up some of the theoretical implications of this that I've uh, been able to, um, to draft so far, so that the pioneers, or what I call the elites, are often viewed as key players in a social network. But I, I think my research also shows that they can have a function outside the social network. I mean, it's, it's the signaling function that Epstein is, is, is writing about, like the herding function, when you see you know, someone's leaving. It doesn't have to be in your own network, but someone is leaving and he's doing very well abroad or she and coming back, and you see this kind of embodiment of success, embodiment of, of having made it in Europe, I think that can, can, can cause a kind of culture of migration as well. Uh, so outside of the social network function, there's also the signaling function that I, I think is important, especially in this case. And then looking at the migration system, when you start to disaggregate groups and, and even like just a, a simple distinction between the elites and those who kind of follow in the footsteps, it's clear that for me that the migration of elites form part of the migration system of the emulators. You know, the very act of emulation uh, here, uh, indicates that it's the same system. But the emulators do not have the same kind of uh, impact on the elites. So they're part of the migration of elites form part of the migration system of emulators, but not vice versa. Uh, and then finally, I mean, it's, it's easy to explain uh, the Iraqi Kurdish migration through macrostructural forces because the region has been subjected to enormous political and economic changes during the last three decades. But I believe if you only do that, and if you don't look at the kind of narratives that people say, and if you don't look at the interwave dynamics and sociological kind of interactions at the group level, you miss out on something very vital. Uh, and finally, I mean, it's a, it's a common assumption in return migration studies that, that macroeconomic growth leads to return. 
and it fits well with you know our economic models and stuff like that. But but I think in this case, you know, you have to ask uh, for whom does macroeconomic growth trigger return, and why does it make it more difficult for some people to come back empty-handed? Thank you very much.